Good morning, church. It is good to be with you. If you haven't already, if you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Exodus, we'll be looking at the portion of, of God's Word that we just heard read to us, the end of chapter 2, the beginning portion of chapter 3. As we've heard His Word read, let's go to Him in prayer, asking for His help, the aid of His own Spirit that we might hear with ears to hear and receive by faith. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, our loving Father, we come to you this morning as your people, humbly submitting ourselves, recognizing and bowing ourselves before your majesty, asking you in full faith from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word that is now going to be sown among us might take such deep root that neither the heat of persecution would cause it to wither, the thorny cares of life would choke it out, but that as your seed being sown in good ground, that it might grow up, bring forth good fruit, 30, 60, even a hundredfold, as you would see fit by your wisdom and by your spirit, that you might appoint to that end, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you will know that this book stands really within a very critical point within the history of redemption and what is the unfolding plan of God's redemption of his people. Because at this moment, in the story of redemption, there is this pressing and at the same time really this growing sense of tension. And that pressure, that tension revolves around this particular question of what will become of God's people and will this God that we've been exposed to, will he be true to his promises? Why do I say that? Well, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you know how the narrative has been building to this point. You may remember back in Genesis chapter 3 that we read of Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden, being expelled from the very place that God created for them to tend and to keep according to his good pleasure and wisdom. They are cast out not just from a place, but from the enjoyment of the presence of God. And as they are sent out, they do not go so go to silently. They go with a promise from God. They go with this promise that from the offspring of Eve would come one who would rise up and crush the head of the serpent. And so they go with anticipation. And we as the reader, as we're reading along in this narrative, we are reading with a built-in sense of anticipation and expectation for the one that would come, just as God promised, from the line of Eve that would be the deliverer, the one who would rise up, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and restore all things that God had created. And so we read in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 and 26 and 35, this same promise of God, it's made, it's expounded, it is reaffirmed to such men like Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And through these continuing chapters, what do we find? It becomes expressingly, and expressingly clear that this, 
this perfect picture that God, he's, he's not forgotten his people. He's not forgotten his promises. And you come to chapter 37 of Genesis and following really what becomes the high point of this narrative as you see God sends Joseph ahead of his brothers into Egypt as a slave, but all a part of God's plan to bring his people into Egypt to preserve them, to provide for them in the midst of famine that they might be a tremendously fruitful people. And the book of Genesis then closes with this wonderful reuniting of, of Joseph with Judah and the rest of the brothers and his father Jacob as they settle in this land of Goshen. And the narrator tells us at the close of Genesis that the people of Israel were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong. But then we come to Exodus, specifically chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The flourishing descriptions that were there before of comfort and prosperity and privilege, they are abruptly replaced with words like affliction and burden and enslavement. You can just look back at chapter 1, verse 13. It says, so that they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and in all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves and it gets worse look down at verse 22 then pharaoh commanded all his people every son that is born to the hebrews you shall cast into the nile but you shall let every daughter live this is the people of God, the people that God has made promise to, the very line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're told then at the end of chapter 2 that this king of Egypt died, but the enslavement of God's people continued on. So much so, as we heard read, that they groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. And then in verse 23, what are we told? Their cry for rescue, it came up to God. And so all of this is building towards this all-important question. What will God do? The God who created all things. The God who makes promises and covenants with his people. The same God that we've read of throughout Genesis who guides his people, he, who sustains them. What will he do now, So these questions are not just important to the narrative of Scripture. They are immediately relevant to our lives today. Because the question that we're asking, or hopefully asking, is what kind of God do we worship? Who is this God that we have sung to this morning? What sort of father is it that we have prayed to and petitioned? No doubt many of you... Children, your parents have been exhorting you and reminding you to trust in God. Put your hope in him. What kind of God are you called to trust in? Who is this God that you're meant to hope in? These are the very questions that Exodus 3 answers for us clearly and soundly. What kind of God do we worship? We're told, first of all, in verse 24, 
But he is a God who remembers his promise. The kind of God that we worship is a God who remembers his promise. Look back at verse 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There is no escaping the attentiveness of God in verse 24. Moses is using uh, nearly every sense possible to display this full compassion of God towards his people. Among the fact that God heard and God saw and God knew, the heart of this response of God is wrapped up in that he remembered his covenant. Notice that. The groaning of God's people is met with the remembrance of of God's covenant to his people. The covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now at the heart of this covenant, if you want just a quick summary, the heart of this promise that God made is that he chose a people for himself. He would bless these people so that through this people, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is what God has promised and affirmed and expounded upon throughout all of Genesis. And specifically, if you want to go back and read Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, God promises that he will make Abraham a great nation, bring them into this land of Canaan, establish them as a people, so that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth might know that he is God, and specifically, that they would be blessed. So this remembrance of this specific covenant here in Exodus 3 is extremely important. Because at this point, within the narrative of Scripture, it would appear that the people of God, the very people that God has made these promises to, it would appear as if God has forgotten them. They're not a great nation. They're a people oppressed and enslaved. How are these people going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth? How is God's promise that the offspring of Eve would strike the head of the servant going to happen here in the midst of enslavement and oppression in Egypt? It would appear circumstantially everything that defines the people of God is counterintuitive to the very promises that this God has made. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God saw and God knew. How comforting it is and how critical it is to hear as we think of our lives this morning. For how often and how tempting it is for you and for I to gauge the faithfulness of God purely on the circumstances that are in front of us. What have you walked through as a church body in the last six, eight, twelve months? What are the particular circumstances in your home, in your families, that would mark out your lives? The particular circumstances that some planned that filled your calendar and some unplanned things that you did not expect to walk through. Think of those things and then keep in mind the exhortation of Scripture where we're called to rejoice with one another's happiness. 
And we are to weep with those who weep. If you were to write down some of the major events or circumstances in your own life in this past six, eight, 12 months, what would you see? Would any of it be reflective of what the people of God are being described of here? Would words like affliction, heavy heavy words like burdens, bitter lives, or even possibly enslavement to sin, would that be some of the circumstances that you would say mark out a portion of your life? It's worth remembering and so critical to remember that when our circumstances scream, God has forgotten that the scriptures scream louder, testifying God will always remember. And whenever our circumstances seem to run contrary to his promise, what we turn to in the, in the scriptures is we find that we can have full confidence that his steadfast love and his faithfulness will always win out despite what we see or hear and feel. He hears the cries of his people. He remembers his covenant. And so the people of God can have full assurance that the steadfast love of God will never fail. We are exhorted again and again as the people of God to cast our cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. We are to look to him. We are to cry out to him. We are to place our confidence in him, not because of the zeal with which we cry out to this God, but because this is a God who sees, who hears, who knows, and who remembers his covenant. That is the sort of God that we worship. And that is why the psalmist exhorts the people of God in Psalm 55, cast your burden upon the Lord. He will sustain you. That is the great confidence that we're given. He will never permit the righteous to be moved or shaken down. Or how about 1 Peter? Peter's exhortation to the people of God amidst suffering. The exhortation in the, in the middle of chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What kind of God is this? What kind of God do we worship? Well, he is a God who remembers his promise. Therefore, we should cry out to him. But what else does the scriptures teach? Not only that he is a God who remembers, but as we come to chapter 3, we see that he is a God who reveals himself. He is a God who reveals himself. Look back at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, 
God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. No doubt there is so much to unpack in this section here, so much that is foundational, not just to our understanding of this narrative, but for all of Scripture and for all of what we define as the Christian faith. But for the sake of our purposes this morning, what I want to draw our attention to is just one simple observation. Notice that God's response to seeing and knowing the burden of his people is the revelation of himself. Before he does anything, he says, this is who I am. Don't overlook that. Yes, he he will most certainly act and he will most certainly deliver his people. He will send plagues. He will divide the Red Sea. He will drown Pharaoh's army. He will lead his people through the Red Sea and ultimately into the promised land. But before he does any of that, what does he do? He reveals himself. Notice that he reveals himself, first of all, in the midst of fire. Fire is really a persistent image within the book of Exodus, playing a a very significant role in the unfolding story that's given to us. Here the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a flame of fire within a bush that is burned with such intensity, but it's not consumed. Fire again reappears because the Lord will appear as a pillar of fire each night, guiding his people, guarding his people. And in chapter 19, the Lord descends upon Mount Sinai in a pillar of fire again and billowing smoke as Moses prepares to ascend the mountain to meet with God. And at the close of the book, all the way over in chapter 40, the presence of the Lord descends upon the tabernacle again as a pillar of cloud and fire, and the glory of the Lord overwhelms the tent of meeting. God is saying something, and that I'm going to make myself known, and the image that I am choosing to do so is fire. But we're told further, as it is clarified further, That God, secondly, he reveals himself in his holiness. He's a God of holiness. Just as man cannot approach a fire without being burned, nor can he approach a holy God in himself. He calls out to Moses and says, stop. Do not come near. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? Calling out to someone, but then warning them to keep their distance? It's very critical to understand this if you're going to understand the God of the Bible and our relationship to him as created beings. This is precisely what he tells Moses in verses 4 and 5. The warning to not come near is a clue to us as the reader that this God is altogether unlike his created beings. He's not just one of the other created things. He's communicating, but he's different than them. Because Moses cannot just stroll into his presence. 
There is something distinct about this God and this man, that there is a separation. He is not like some household God that maybe the other households would have taken up as you like at any point in the day. He's not like the false gods of Egypt because where this God is, Moses cannot be because he is separate. He is holy. And really what you find as you continue to turn the pages of Scripture is that whether it's this mountain or any other holy place, what makes it holy is the fact that God is there. That God chooses, this is where my presence will be known. And where my presence is known, it is holy. It is different. It is set apart. So what this is telling us, really at the most simplistic and the most foundational level, is that God is saying to Moses, before he goes to Pharaoh, before I send one plague, before I part the sea, you must know something of who I am. Do not overlook this simple observation that God responds to the cries of his people by giving them a greater revelation of, of who he is. Yes, he will most certainly act. The book of Exodus is filled with the acts of God unto his glory, but prior to that, he makes himself known. He reveals something of himself, and this is so critical for our lives as God's people. Why? Because you and I live in a culture that is obsessed with pragmatism, with technique, with steps, with programs, and we are not immune from these errors. It's not an out there versus in here problem. We swim in the same waters. This is the culture that we live in and the assumptions that we bring to so many of the experiences, circumstances, and reality of of lives that, that we live. We are in such great need to be called back to this place before we do anything to behold this God, to consider the revelation that he has given of himself. Yes, the the long arc of redemption, it tells this story and it culminates with the restoration of all things. God accomplishes his purposes, no doubt. But how do weary pilgrims live in a day and age until that is ultimately accomplished? How do we live in light of that knowledge when we look at the world around us? When you look at your own marriage and homes and children and workplace? When we behold our God, when we consider what he has said, when we remember what he has done and how he's revealed himself, we are given help. Christ has come. He has lived this perfect life of righteousness. He died the sacrificial death that restores his people to God. He's risen from the grave. He is ruling now at the right hand of the Father. This has already happened. It is a done deal. But the restoration of all things is not yet. We live in this in between of already but not yet. Already Christ has died and rose and ascended, but he has not yet returned and restored all things and judged all things with perfect righteousness and rescued his people to bring them home to dwell with him. So how do you and I live in between already and not yet? 
Because we live in days that are scarred by pain and loss. There are many relationships, there are many circumstances and moments that we could point to and say, that's not right. There is something wrong with that. Because the rot of sin and the futility of this fallen world, it afflicts us every day. And some of these things, they will not be fixed this side of heaven. But that does not mean, brothers and sisters, that we are without hope or that we're just left to fend for ourselves. The great need for pilgrims living in a fallen world is to gaze at this God who promises to sustain and keep his people. To gaze and consider just what sort of God is it that we worship. To consider the revelation that he has given of himself to us. Our great need, I would wager and argue, is to behold the beauty of the Lord. To meditate upon the one who is our creator, our sustainer, our keeper, our comforter, our king. Because if you haven't figured it out, most of the time throughout the course of your days, God does not tell you what he's going to do. As you seek him and as you pray, God, tell me, what should I do here? Maybe many of you are at a crossroads in that where that fills up much of your prayer life. I have a decision to make. What should I do? And have you found, like I have, that most of those times in those moments, God doesn't tell you what to do specifically, but if you think back, how faithful has he been to remind you of who he is? That is most often how God guides and directs his people. He says, this is who I am. And in the revelation and in the illumination of that revelation, what do we know? Well, I can move forward in a certain direction. I can be humbled where I need to be humbled. I can be encouraged where I need to be encouraged. I can have faith strengthened where it is weak. I can have all confidence regardless of circumstance, not because I know what's going to happen in five nanoseconds, but because I know something of this God and he's revealed himself to me. This revelation of of himself, it is the great sufficiency for every Christian in any circumstance. My God sees, he hears, he knows, and he is. Because what happens when we begin to gaze at God? What happens when we begin to behold him as he's revealed himself? When we do that, we're not looking for quick fixes, for handy techniques, for life hacks to get us through the next couple of days. We are enamored with this God. We are humbled. We are brought to our knees. And our gaze of him, it extends beyond the horizon of our circumstances and we look upward. And we are astounded at what we see and what we hear in his word. Because we are looking then at the one who is worthy of our entire devotion that consumes our entire gaze. We are looking to the one who is in himself sufficient for all things. We are reminding ourselves he's creator. He's the one who spoke the worlds into existence, creating molecules and and mountains out of nothing. And we confess that he is holy, holy, 
holy, just like we sang this morning that he's high above the earth, that his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. He does not see as man sees. He does not exist as man exists. There is no hint of of evil within him. His goodness does not diminish by one ounce for all of eternity. This is the God that we say, behold, that is the God that I worship. And so when we look to him and we hear of all that the scriptures reveal of him, we can then say in full faith and great contentment, my God is enough. My soul is content. Do you know God like this? Are you able to say those words? My God is enough. My soul is content. When you read your Bible, are you looking to commune with this triune God? Or are you merely looking for more information? There's a great difference in how you read your Bible between those two goals and the experience that that person will have. God has given us his word that we might know him. Not just doctrines about him, but to have genuine communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through what he has revealed of himself. Yes, God is most certainly transcendent. He is high above us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are so beyond our ways. Yes, he is mysterious in the counsel of his wisdom and the essence of his being, the the dynamic of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a wonderful mystery to us. But this mysterious, transcendent, eternal, unchanging God has revealed himself to us. He has made himself known through this supernatural self-communication and he has purposefully and deliberately broken into our world that we might know who he is. This means that for God and all of his majesty and all of his mystery, that he can be known insofar as he has revealed himself. He comes to us, as he always has, by word and spirit, calling out, declaring, and commanding, and saying, Behold, I am. This is what God does. This is what God does for his people. And when we recognize that this is the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us in the midst of our circumstances, we are then those people who are able to say, This is my God. Behold, I am content. I am at rest. He is a God who has revealed himself, therefore we must look to him. But he's not only a God who remembers, he's not only a God who reveals himself, he is a God who redeems his people. Look back at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land 
into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Why did the Holy One, the consuming fire, reveal himself to Moses in the wilderness of Midian? He did it to save his people. He did it to fulfill his promises. He did it to bring redemption. He has come down to bring them out so that he might bring them up. That's the language of God. Now, do not overlook the significance of this imagery of God coming down to rescue his people. How full of kindness, how full of condescension is this phrase? God stooping down from his heavenly throne to redeem his earthly people. Of course, the parallels here in Exodus 3 and the work of Christ, it's unmistakable. You're already hearing it. You're already seeing it. God coming down to save his people. It is a narrative that is woven in here that only grows bolder and louder as we continue to read the arc of the history of redemption. The epicenter of God's condescension and mercy is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. In Jesus Christ, God has stooped down and become man. And just why did he do this? To redeem his people. To bring them out of bondage. To bring them out that he might bring them up. This is the very epicenter of the story of God. Christ, then, we can say, is the ultimate answer to the groaning of his people. The Son of God, in human form, is the most mystifying, the most knee-bending declaration of God hearing and seeing and knowing that there could ever be. John 1 retells the same truth. Do you remember John's prologue to his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14, in case we weren't picking up on it, he explicitly says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is Paul's instruction in Colossians 1? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The incarnation of the eternal Son of God is God's most definitive answer to saying, I have heard, I've seen, I've remembered, I know. We ought to often remind one another of the end of the story. What does the story of redemption announce in the last chapter of what God ultimately accomplishes? 
the end of the story of where he promised to Eve that he would send from her line the one that would crush the head of the serpent, what he promised to Abraham, what he promised to the disciples, the gates of hell would not prevail against his people, his church. The end of the story in John's revelation in chapter 21, John describes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, no longer separated, no longer cast out, no longer stay back. The dwelling place of God is with man man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. No more groaning. No more crying out. No more weeping for deliverance. For God accomplishes the very thing that his people need. As the only one who could ever ultimately accomplish it. What kind of God is this? He's a God who redeems his people so that we might be with him. How fitting it is that we hear this gospel word preached and then we come as God's people to his table. Because that table there with those elements, it is the visible word that proclaims the wonderful truth that God has in fact come down. And more than that, it tells us that he has come down taking on human flesh in order to shed real blood to be the all-sufficient sacrifice to redeem his people. And because of this death, the wrath of God passes over his people and it's fallen on him, the Son, the incarnate word of God. God has heard the cries of his people. He's heard our groaning. He has heard our burden under the weight of our sin. He's seen our affliction. And he knows. And this knowledge, it's not some distant knowledge that he would look at from afar off, but it's a knowledge of one who took on flesh. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He sees, he knows. We're told he's a sympathetic high priest, able to sympathize with our weakness. He is the one who's remembered the covenant, that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. That's the language of our confession in chapter 7. It's the language of Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, 
but as God's people. The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. What kind of God do we worship, church? We worship a God who remembers his promise, so we are to cry out to him. We worship a God who's revealed himself, so we should look to him. And we worship a God who's redeemed us, that we might be with him. Father, we ask that you would cause this great reality, this great revelation of yourself to be pressed down, not just into our minds, but into our very souls, that the very essence of who we are might be transformed. We do pray that you would cause the great promise of your word and the testimony of your faithfulness to your people to strengthen us when we are weak in faith, to give us great assurance when we hear the condemnation of our own sin and failure, to be reminded that you have come to redeem your people from their sin in our bondage. Father, we pray that you would give us great comfort and great hope, knowing that you are the great shepherd of the sheep, and that we can therefore trust our lives to you with all confidence that whatever comes in the measure of days that you give us, that we can go with great confidence that you see, that you know, that you hear, and that you remember. Lord, strengthen your church through the ministry of your word that it might cause great fruit to your glory. Amen.